0: If you would, please remain standing and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to start at Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee and leaving Nazareth He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Please be seated. I hope you've seen, as we begin to walk through the Gospel of Matthew, what we've said all along, this is not a biography of Jesus. Rather, it is a strong defense of of who Jesus is and what Jesus was preaching. This can get so easily watered down in today's age. We come up with this soft gospel, that quiet Jesus knocking on the door of your heart, just waiting for you to let him in. But that's not what we find in scripture. We have this idea that God somehow saw sin in the world and then reacted to it and then came up with a plan. Say, oh no, it went south. Let me come up with a plan. But this is where Matthew starts in his gospel, is pointing to who Christ is, defending who Christ is, who Christ always was, and who Christ was going to be. We can go all the way back to the Old Testament. We have prophecy of a virgin birth where it says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, Prophet Micah called out Jesus' birthplace, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you, from you shall come forth for, for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Jesus escaped to Egypt. Again, Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The slaying of the infants by Herod. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Jesus coming from Nazareth. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. And then we hit John the Baptist's ministry. All the way back in Isaiah. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places as plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We can go all the way back to the fall of man when you have that very first promise of the coming of Christ. Last time we hit the temptation of Jesus, where Jesus' response was, you shall serve the Lord only. So we can see all through the Old Testament We have this picture of who Jesus is, not who Jesus will become, who Jesus is through this. We looked at a quote by John MacArthur last week, and I think it's worth repeating again today, that when we look at the temptations of Jesus right before the beginning of his ministry, John MacArthur wrote that Jesus' victory over the temptations of Satan demonstrated his divine kingship his royal power to resist the only other great ruler and dominion in the universe, Satan himself. Christ here won his first direct battle with his great enemy and thereby gave evidence of his glorious right and powers, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the supreme ruler over all creation. In doing so, he sealed his victory yet to come. This is not the Jesus that knocks on your heart and says, please let me in. So, as we look at our text today, I want us to continue looking at this as a defense of who Jesus is. And who Scripture says He is, we can look at John's Gospel in, in chapter one, the very beginning of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So what we see today is the official beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it begins with the arrest of John the Baptist. Matthew here does not say much about this arrest. He has a lot more to say. If you turn to Matthew chapter 14, we can read about John's arrest. And I know that's split up by many, many, many chapters, but it is the same arrest that we're talking about. So Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, says, at the time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. Well, I may have written down the wrong verses there. No, this is right. He's been raised from the dead. Uh, that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him up and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias. And we know this story It keeps going, that Herodias tricks... Uh, Herod into serving John the head's head on a platter as a gift to her. So Herod is speaking of Jesus saying, this has got to be John the Baptist coming back. So this arrest leads to John the Baptist's death. It is the end of John's ministry. When Jesus heard of the arrest, he withdrew into Galilee. And arriving uh, and leaving Nazareth, he went up to Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Nephtali, so that it could be spoken by, so that what was spro- spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. This is another one of those times that we have to depend on the sovereignty of God here. Because we could read into this and say, well, Jesus was running. Jesus had heard what happened to John, he's in fear for his life, he runs. But that's not what. Verse 14 of our text says that this was done so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. It's not done out of fear, but rather it's done out of obedience to the Father's will. It was all part of God's plan for redemption, settled before the foundation of time. None of it would happen without God's sovereign decree for it to happen. So with perfect sovereignty, with perfect timing... We have Jesus leaving Nazareth and heading up to Capernaum. Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, speaks of Jesus. Said, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set forth set by his Father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is not Jesus running for his life. This is the appointed time that God had for him to begin his ministry. John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus proclaims in the temple, he says, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I came from him, and he sent me. So when they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because this, his hour had not yet come. God works on his own timetable, not on the dependencies of man, not as a reaction to man. Jesus would later say when he was praying in the garden before his arrest, He said, see, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. John writes it as the, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus knew that all things worked according to God's sovereign decree. According to his perfect timing. John's arrest signaled the end of his ministry of pointing to Christ as the Messiah, and it began Jesus' ministry of redemption. So many people will try and tell you, I've heard sermons preached about Jesus running for fear of his life. That's just not the case. He came to die. They'll tell you that he left Galilee to avoid the same fate as John. That's not true that Jesus was running away for fear of his life. Jesus had no reason to fear any man. And if fear of arrest and death was a reason for his move, then Galilee would have been a terrible place to go because Herod was a ruler there too. He should have run somewhere much smarter if that was his purpose. Some will use John. Uh, John's Gospel to tell you that Jesus didn't actually fear Herod. He feared the scribes and the Pharisees. He feared the Jewish leaders were going to arrest him and have him killed. And we get this kind of from John chapter 4, where it says, now when Jesus learned the Pharisees... Uh, learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Again, this is not a running out of fear. As As you recall, where he went through Samaria was the woman at the well, that, that great presentation of the gospel and recognition from even a Samaritan on who Christ is. It's very true that the scribes and the Pharisees would quickly turn their hatred to, of, from John towards Jesus, but Jesus had no more fear of the Jewish leaders than, than John did we go back to Matthew chapter 3, we see how John responded to the Pharisees when, and the Sadducees when they came to the baptism. He says, but when he, saw, when, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, you, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance." And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's how John feared the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We can turn to Matthew chapter 23 and see how Jesus responds. And I won't read the entire chapter, but you totally should. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do, not, uh, so do observe what they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make... Uh, there, a, read, that word I can't read again. Uh, I'm skipping it. Uh, broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts. And the best seats in the synagogue. And greetings in the marketplace. And being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher. And you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth. For you have one Father who is in heaven, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Jesus follows this up with six more very dramatic, very aggressive woes directly in the faces of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So if Jesus didn't run out of fear, why then the move from Nazareth up to Capernaum? Jesus has spent almost all of his life to this point in Nazareth. If we, if we had a map, we could look at it. Imagine, imagine the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River coming out south. Nazareth was about... Uh, it was just off the, probably 20 miles off of the Jordan River. Galilee, on the other hand, was up on the far north side of the Sea of Galilee. It was a Roman province. It was not very large. In and of itself, as a matter of fact, the entire province of Galilee was only about 50 miles by 25 miles. However, it was one of the most densely populated Roman cities in the world at the time. It said that there were no fewer than 204 villages in Galilee. The smallest of the village having at least 15,000. It's believed that there were 2 to 3 million inhabitants of Galilee. Galilee. And Capernaum, one of these small sub-cities, set on that northmost point of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum itself was about 14 miles long by about 7 miles at its widest point. Surrounding Capernaum were 9 to 10 thriving townships. Again, this is the most densely populated area and the most densely populated province in the Middle East. Matthew goes back and quotes the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9 to say, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And there was a lot of contempt for Capernaum. People did not like the Jews that came from that area. And the reason is that they had the Syrians to the north and to the east of them. They had the descendants of the ancient Phoenicians to the west of them. And it served as, as this little crossroad to the Sea of Galilee and to the Jordan for trade. So when you, when you read in there the, the way of the sea, that was actually the name of a very famous Roman trade route that would go down through Galilee to Damascus, then to the Mediterranean coast, and then all the way down to Egypt, one of the largest trading areas in the world at the time. One ancient writer once said that Judea was on the way to nowhere, but Galilee was on the way to everywhere. Between this area being conquered by the Assyrians in the Old Testament and this new Roman. Occupation. Most people in Galilee were heavily influenced by the Gentile word, world. Matter of fact, that's that's why they called Galilee Galilee of the Nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. Galileans were despised by the pious Jews found in Jerusalem. For centuries, this area had been influenced by pagan practices, by Greek language, by philosophy, by generally just non-Jewish influences. So it almost makes sense that the gospel would thrive there. It makes sense that the gospel would thrive in Galilee. And that it would be hated in Jerusalem. In John chapter 1, when Philip found uh, Nathanael and was calling him, he said, we have, found, uh, we have found him who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And John, when Nicodemus was arguing for Jesus to have a fair trial... Nicodemus himself gets accused of being from Galilee, saying, "Are are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophets arise in Galilee. So why would we have the very first giving of the gospel happen in such a despised place? Why would Christ not have gone to Jerusalem first? Why would it not be the pious, learned scribes or the Pharisees who would be the first to glimpse the Messiah. Why did Christ not go to the most pure of the Jews? For instead of going down to Jerusalem, Christ went to a people that the Jews called mongrels, as, as half-bloods, as the downcast and the trodden, as the non-elite The the Jews that cared the least about Jewish tradition. Why is it that Jesus chose this location to be his ministry? And I think that clearly points to the purpose of Christ's ministry. The gospel was for the whole world. It was not just for the proud and the pious. Christ chose the most despised of the Jews to take his gospel to first. It's quoted in our text that the people dwelling in darkness, we're talking about in Galilee, have seen a great light and those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them has a light dawned. Christ had come and come to the darkest of areas to shine the brightest if you read in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, it says, Behold, my servant, whom I am uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the Lord. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations Not only did he choose a people who desperately needed him, a a people that had been corrupted by disobedience, uh, by sin, by pagan worship, all of these things. He chooses there. He also chooses there because, again, one of the most populated trade routes in the world people would come and go and the gospel would spread like wildfire through these trade routes it's no mistake it's no reaction of God that these things were occurring at this time God's actively working to bring about salvation and this was planned before the foundation of the world God had chosen the people, God had chosen the time, God had chosen the place, and God will fulfill his holy will. Nothing was left up to chance and nothing was left up to us. Soon we'll get to uh, Matthew chapter 5 with the longest single teaching of Christ that we have, the Sermon on the Mount. But Matthew leaves us in this section with probably Christ's first and shortest sermon. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This has been and always will be the first demand of the gospel. And John MacArthur's commentary on Matthew writes, The great darkness has been upon you because the great darkness that is in you. You must be willing to turn from that darkness before the light can shine on you. In other words, repent. Turn from the darkness that's within you because we know what that darkness is, it's sin. To repent is to turn away from sin, to turn to Christ. It's a radical change in your thoughts and your deeds. It's a radical change in how you view yourself and how you view God as holy. Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, and at the end of the sermon, the people asked him, what then shall we do? Peter's response was to repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked crooked generation. I find no reason why anything else needs to be preached beyond repent and believe. Save yourself from this crooked generation. So I'd ask you, if you are in sin today, if you're in darkness today, if you're suffering from things like anxiety or depression, there is a solution to all that. There is a cause and there's a solution. The cause is sin, the solution is Christ. He's the light in your darkness. He came, he put on flesh, he lived a perfect life, he died a sinner's death, he rose again, and he did it all to atone for your sins and for my sins, to take the punishment that we've earned. Some pastors will try and convince you that there's some level of faith you have to have, there's some level of... Uh, piety that you have to have. There's some level of giving that you have to give. But Christ came for the unrighteous. He didn't come for the religious. He came to save wretched sinners. Christ, in his own words, when he was asked why he was associating with sinners and despised tax collectors, just the dregs of society. Why Christ, why would you meet and eat with these unholy people? His response, those were those who well, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've come to call the righteous, but uh, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." So if you've not placed your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, repent and believe. If you have done that and you have not followed through an obedience and believers baptism, I'd urge you to talk to us about that and to follow in obedience. If you have concerns regarding your salvation then please grab me after the service. Grab any of the guys that you've seen up here. Uh, Find someone to talk to before you leave. So my prayer for us today is that we will be reminded of the beauty of God's sovereign work in salvation. God's people, God's plan, his timing, his location, All of it, God. So I'll leave you with a hymn today from the Puritan uh, preacher, William Gadsby. The gospel brings tidings, glad tidings indeed, to mourn in Zion who want to be freed. From sin and Satan and Mount Mount Sinai's flame, good news of salvation through Jesus the Lamb. What sweet invitation the gospel contains to men heavy laden with bondage and chains. It welcomes the weary to come and be blessed with ease from their burdens and Jesus to rest. For every poor mourner who thirsts for the Lord, a fountain is opened in Jesus the word. Their pure parched conscience to cool and to wash from guilt and pollution, from dead works and dross. A robe is provided, their shame now to hide, in which none are clothed but Jesus' bride, Though it be costly, yet is the robe free, and all Zion's mourners shall decked with it be. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word, Lord, that you have chosen to reveal yourself, to call yourself a people, uh, Lord, to... um, not have immediately destroyed us the moment we sinned as we would well deserve. Lord, we thank you for sending your son to take on the punishment that we so rightly deserve, Lord. We thank you for the fact that he is sitting at your right hand right now, interceding on the behalf of believers, Lord. Lord, let us marvel daily at your sovereignty, at your holiness, at your wisdom, your grace and your mercy. It's in your, your name we pray. Amen.